Well, I'm, uh, I'm just thrilled to be back. I missed you guys last Sunday as uh, I was with a team of our folks down in Toledo. And then uh, last Sunday afternoon, uh, Joe took a team of our folks down to Newark. And we had the privilege of sharing with those churches this past week what God's doing in our church through the ministry of discipleship. And uh, I just want to tell you, um, God did exceeding abundantly above all that that the boy could think um we were we were just kind of going into a, a a unique situation there and and I, all i can say is i know that you guys you prayed uh many of you and i know that some of you right now going oh my goodness i forgot uh but but that, that, that's, that's cool because other folks remembered because it was it was more than apparent to us that there were folks that were, were praying and we we do appreciate that uh, and boy, it's just, it's just good to be home with y'all and be able to, to lift our hearts to worship the Lord and just uh, the freedom that's in this room, and, uh, and I'm, I'm blessed. But you know, I, I, I guess there's never been a time, I certainly in all of my life, and some of you folks have got me by one or two years. I know I've got some of y'all by a couple. But, uh, you know, in, in all, of, all of my days, I, there's never been days quite like today. Uh, as Frank mentioned, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s, that was kind of a weird time, and I'm sure that some of you folks who were a little more mature than us during those times looked at what was happening in our country and in the world during those times, and it was, it was pretty freaky. But, but I'm just telling you, something wild is going on right now. And I don't know if it's because we're in the, the study of the book of Revelation, we're talking about end times and all of that. I, I, I'm, I'm sure that part of it is that. But there's just this weird deal that's going on to where in the midst of a great economy at the present moment, there is a major unsettledness. You know, this Y2K thing has got people all up in arms and I mean, it's, it's everywhere you go. Uh, you probably saw on New Year's Day, man. I mean, it was just going all day long. They're talking about one year from today, it's going to be a jungle, or maybe it's not, and all of these kind of things. And, but, but in the midst of all of this, this, this talk, and, and, and what's kind of wild is if you, if you check out the, you know, when you're checking out at the grocery, you know, those, those magazines or whatever they're called there, you know, they're even giving room to the fact that this may well be the end times. And, you know, I mean, it's just being verbalized. And in the midst of all of this, this talk about these things, to me, it just seems as if Satan is just right out there in your, your face on some stuff. I don't know if, if you've noticed, but the, the movies nowadays and the TV programs, even the commercials... The stuff that they're talking about, I mean, it's just like Satan has just pulled everything back and he's just putting it right out there. You know, on the top of your study sheet there, we got words like millennium. You know, I mean, we, that was a word not too long ago that you only heard used in the church. Now it's a TV program. Millennium. Uh, Armageddon, you probably, when you looked at the study sheet today, thought we were going to just do this, you know, synopsis. These are TV programs we're talking about here. Babylon, you know, I mean, come on, y'all. The only place you hear about that is in the Bible. And you got Babylon 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. These are, these are movies. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the Honda commercial. Have, have you seen this deal where they, they, they take a word and they, they give you like uh, 
they'll, they'll spell the word here, and then they'll put in parentheses like the pronunciation in the dictionary. Then they'll define the word. How many of you have seen this? Okay, they've got several different ones. I forget what the word is that they've got on the screen. Uh, I think it's the word, I think it's level. I'm, I'm not sure. But they've got like the word level, and then they've defined it. But in the background, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's the dictionary page that's just subtly in the background. You know what's on, right there in the very center of the screen? The word Leviathan. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at that thing going, you got to be kidding me, man. I mean, he's just, just putting it right out there. You know, and, and what is so sad is that most of Christianity doesn't even know what a Leviathan is. And I'll I just encourage you that if you don't know what it is, you can go check it out in the dictionary, and it's, it's there. But you better use God's dictionary to go find out who it is. And uh, it, I can't remember exactly what tape it is, but we go into this whole deal on church history. I think it's I think it's number 15, but the ladies and men in the bookstore can help you with that deal. But, I mean, it's just right out there. Um, you, you saw the advertisements for the movie. Uh, I, I doubt that you saw it. But you, you saw the advertisements for the movie Deep Impact. And, and what it is is about this, this major tidal wave that is coming in. And you know what it is? It, it's what we studied a few chapters ago in the book of Revelation. What's going to happen during the tribulation period. And then... They, I, I, now, I've never seen this because I think this comes on Sunday night. Maybe it comes on several times. X-Files, does, is that just a Sunday night gig? Everyone's afraid to answer, right? Uh, well, how many have ever watched X-Files? Okay, I, I've never had the privilege or, or whatever. But I, I, I'm told about what, what's, what's going on in the X-Files is you've got these aliens that have come and visited this planet and are cohabitating with human beings. Now, I don't know for sure if you've quite connected all of this, but in, in Matthew chapter 24, what you have there is Jesus is, is talking about how things are going to be during the tribulation period right before his second coming to this planet. And do you remember what he said? He, he said it's going to be like a, a day that was before, the days of the days of Noah. And so that you didn't miss what the days of Noah were all about, he says that what was happening there is people were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and giving in marriage. Okay? If you go back and you, you go to the Bible and you try to figure out what is it that was going on in the days of Noah that are going to be repeated during the days of the tribulation. Now listen, the only place you have to go to get the context of what the days of Noah were like is Genesis chapter 6. It's, it is the only place that you got. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the creation. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall. Genesis chapter 4 is Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 5 is a, a, a genealogy from beginning to end, and then you come to chapter 6. And you know what was happening during that time, y'all? Listen to it. Aliens were coming to this planet and cohabitating with human beings. 
And I know that some of the folks in this room are going, we got to get out of this place. <laughs> These people believe in aliens. <laughs> but if you check it out in Genesis chapter 6, what it is is fallen angels, demon spirits, aliens as it were, who came to this planet, cohabitated with human beings. And you know what the result was? A weird type of humanoid, as it were, that was great in stature and evidently had some type of incredible power. You know what it is? It's everything that rocks our boat right now on TV. And Satan is just right out there. In the, what it calls them in Genesis chapter 6 is mighty men of renown. These beings that were populating this planet, and, and Jesus says, okay, now if you want to know what it's going to be like during the tribulation period, it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah. And if you go check out that whole marrying and giving in marriage thing, that's the context. You know what it is? It's the theme of the X-Files. And, and what I'm trying to get you to see, y'all, is something is up. And, and it's like somehow somebody somewhere knows that something's up. And I believe it is the forces of evil. I think it's just no holds barred at this point. They're just saying, come on, let's just, let's just run with it. Let's, let's have some fun. I believe they're having a whole bunch of fun. But I also believe that, that God's people know that something's up too. Amen? God's people in this room. And I, I hope that by this point, through our study of the book of Revelation, that, that you know that there is most definitely something that is up. Now... We've been studying the book of Revelation. You can see at the top of your study sheet that this is now our, our 78th shot at this, this thing. Uh, we're a little better than halfway through the book right now. But the, 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 the thing that is just kind of uh, weird about where we are in our study right now is it's been two solid months since we've been in Do you realize the last time we did Revelation was November 22nd? I mean, that is wild. We had... Uh, Remember, we had the, uh, Russia's appointment with Destiny, which was a four-week thing. We had Victor Krutka from Belarus that was with us. And then we did the New Year uh, things and, uh, and all of that. And, and lo and behold, and when I was out of town last week, and it, it's just been two solid months. And, uh, and no doubt there have been folks that have been saved in the last several months. You haven't even been here for a, a real Sunday morning to, to be in the, the study of the book of Revelation. And... Uh, and so, you know what, since it's been so long, what I thought we might do is just peel off a little bit of time here at the beginning, and let's just, let's just review. And rather than me just feed you uh, the info, let's see how we do, okay? Let, let's, let's see what we remember. Now, now y'all, loosen up just a little bit, okay? And, and uh, we're going to talk to each other. We've got folks that are guests with us today. And you know what? Listen, what this is for you folks who are guests, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a crash course in the book of Revelation right now. And our people are going to have the opportunity of teaching you. And for some of you that haven't quite put all of it together yet, maybe this will be the day as you just see the big picture of this thing. Maybe this will be the day where it will come together for you. But as we approach any book of the Word of God, any study of the Word of God, we've got to 
always keep in mind the principle of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. And it is a verse that tells us that when we come to the Word of God, there's something that we've got to make sure that we do. And the, it's, it, it, I'm just looking for one word right now. That, that word is, is, let's say it together. It, the word is, whoa. Yeah. I, I thought y'all were going to know that word. The word is study. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. What's the next two words? Rightly dividing the word of truth. And what God tells you is that he has divisions in his book. And in order for you to get those divisions in the proper place, there's something you got to do. Study. You really got to work at it. You've you got to consume this book. And what you begin to find, if you, just, if you just began to consume the book of Revelation, and you were to read it, and you were to be diligent in giving yourself to the study of this book, what you're going to find is there is an event that takes place two times in this book. Somebody raise your hand and tell me what that event is. Y- yes, sir. Mike. Heaven opens twice. Heaven opens two times in the book of Revelation. The first place it opens is in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. Somebody raise your hand tell me what happens there. Yes, Carl? Somebody goes up and the event that it takes place in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 is the, the rapture of the church. Okay, heaven opens another time in second, or Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And what happens at this event when heaven opens? Yes, sir, the urban renewal program. Somebody comes down and that event is the... The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to this planet. Okay, so now now watch this thing. Heaven opens here, and heaven opens here. It opens in Revelation chapter 4. Somebody goes up. Over here in Revelation chapter 19, heaven opens, and somebody comes down. Now, if we had a timeline up here, and we just had chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Okay? We had all of these lined up here. What we would find here is when heaven opens, what it does is it divides the book into how many sections? It divides the book into three sections. And what we find is in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19, John is told to write in what? three tenses, and of course those tenses are, let's say it together, past, present, and future. Now, he's told to write in those three tenses, past, present, and future, but if you're going to make your way through the book of Revelation, and this is where most people lose their shirt, before they can even get out of Revelation chapter 1, and I'm not saying that uh, uh, facetiously, I'm not trying to, you know, be lord over anybody else and say, they missed it, and we're great, we see it, but I'm just telling you, If you miss Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, you will not properly divide the book of Revelation because something happens in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. What happens to John is he's on the Isle of Patmos in approximately 95 A.D. But what God does is he catapults him forward in time to a particular time. It is the time of the... Somebody raise your hand and and say it. Yes, Marge. The day of the Lord. Now, a lot of folks want to come to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, and and they want to make that. He was on, on Sunday, and he had this vision. No, he was catapulted ahead in time to the day 
of the Lord. Okay, and of course, the day of the Lord is it begins with the tribulation period and encompasses the second coming of Christ. Okay, so if he's catapulted forward in time to that point, then that means that the present to him is the day of the Lord, and from that perspective, he is to write in three tenses. And so what that means is that Revelation, if he's standing at the day of the Lord, it means that Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3 is what tense, y'all? It's the past, okay? It's what we refer to as the church age, and it's encompassed in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then we come to Revelation chapter 4 and verse 19, and that is what tense, y'all? It's the present, in which would encompass the tribulation and the second coming. And then you come into the, the third section in Revelation chapter 20 through 22, and of course the tense is future, and the events that are covered in chapter 20 is the millennium, chapter 21 is the new heaven and the new earth, and then chapter 22 is eternity. So what that means, okay, now, now listen very carefully, now that, that gives you the panoramic view of the book of Revelation. You've got the church age that's covered, then the second, uh, the tribulation period and the second coming, then the millennium, the new heaven, new earth, and then eternity. But what that means is that the key section of the book, the vast majority of this book, is covered in chapters 4 through 19. And what a lot of folks, when they come to, to this section, they don't rightly divide that section. They begin to try to blend it all together. And what we have found through our study of the book of Revelation is that the Lord brings John in these chapters, chapters 4 through 19, he brings John through the tribulation and the second coming, how many times? Four times from four different perspectives. And what it is, it would be the equivalent of the Gospels. They cover the, the same ground four times. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all covering the same ground, but from four different vantage points. And the same thing happens in the book of Revelation when it comes to the second coming of Christ. It, he covers it four times in, in those the, the, from chapters 4 through 19. And each time God brings you through the, the tribulation and the second coming in, in the book of Revelation, he does so through a series of how many things? Of seven things. And we've, we've noted many times in this study that this is God's number of completion and perfection in the Bible. And the first time he brings you through the tribulation and the second coming, he does it through seven... Somebody raise your hand and tell me. Yes, Doug. Seven seals that are opened in chapter 6 and 7. The second time he brings us through, it's... Yeah, Mark through seven trumpets that are sounded in chapters 8 through 11. Now, this is not a, a typo. We, we, I've jumped ahead to the fourth time because we're dealing right now with the third time. But the fourth time, and you'll have to have read the end of the book to know this, but it's seven, somebody? Seven, y'all didn't raise your hand. Seven vials that are poured and then the third time, and again, this is where we are right now in our study of the book of Revelation. This third time, it's through, now raise your hand, okay, somebody, yeah, Mike, okay, uh, that, that would work. There's another word that we've used, uh, yes, 
Seven personages that are revealed. Seven personages that are revealed. And I've listed those, those for you. Uh, we, we've looked at the first five of these already. The woman, of course, is, let's say it together, she is Israel. The great dragon is Satan. The child is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Michael, of course, is the archangel. Then the Jewish remnant, the believing remnant that we saw at the end of chapter 12. And then as we come into chapter 13, we have the first beast who is the Antichrist. And then we'll see uh, in the coming weeks the the second beast. But as we came to to chapter 13, where he begins to to show to us this one that gets so much attention right now in the, the media and through various singing groups and all kind of stuff, the, the Antichrist, what we did is we used this as an occasion to just build a, a biblical composite of, of this one. And we began, first of all, looking at his rise to power. And we saw that ra- rather than being some grotesque, villainous, dastardly, evil ogre like we sometimes imagine the Antichrist to be, uh, you know, a guy that's going to come in and by force and threats and armies, he's going to just, you know, take over and dominate the world. What we saw is that when he rises to power, he will do so because he will, first of all, do you remember the word? He will woo the world. W-O-O. He'll woo the world. And we saw in Daniel chapter 8, verse 23, he'll provide answers to the difficult questions that man will face during the tribulation period. He'll be able to to give meaning to the dark sentences. He'll give understanding. Daniel chapter 11, verse 21 says that he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. In other words, he'll take the world by wooing it. After wooing it, next we saw that he will wow the world. He's going to put on the most incredible and and miraculous and amazing demonstration of supernatural power that this world has ever seen since the time Jesus Christ was on this planet carrying out his ministry. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9 says that the Antichrist coming is after uh, the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying Wonders And with those, he will absolutely have the world eating out of his hands. First, he'll woo the world. Then he'll wow the world. And then next, he will win the world. He'll win them, first of all, religiously. Revelation 13, 8 says that all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. But not only that, he'll win the world politically. Revelation 13, 16 says he'll cause everyone on this planet, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. And through that mark, he will exercise. Revelation 13, 7 says he'll exercise power over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And after that, he'll win the world commercially. Revelation 13, 17 says that no man will be able during that period of time to buy or sell unless he has the mark. And then once he's pulled that off, he'll do something else. He'll woe the world. He'll woe the world. After he's wooed the world, wowed the world, won the world, he'll be revealed for who he really is. And Revelation 13, 15 says that he'll cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And it'll be a time of great woe 
on this planet. And that leads to a final thing. He will then war the world. Revelation 16, verses 12 through 16 says that by the end of the tribulation period, the Antichrist will gather together all of the kings of the whole world and their armies for the most devastating military confrontation in human history. It's a battle that is called the Battle of Armageddon, and if you're asleep, it must be a time to turn your page over. Wow. It sounds like the ocean, man, the, the, the roar. I, I, I like it. But it's going to come down to the battle of Armageddon. And by the time that battle is all over, the Lord Jesus Christ will have returned from heaven. He'll come down into that valley of Megiddo, the Armageddon, and he will literally stomp what the Bible says will be 200 million military troops. He'll smash them, the Bible says, like tiny little grapes uh, until the Bible says their blood will run three feet deep for 160 miles down the Kishon, down to the Jordan River. An incredible, incredible uh, mass destruction that is going to take place on, on this planet. Then we looked at, at the Antichrist as we were continued building this biblical composite of him. We looked at his genius. He'll be an intellectual genius. He will be an oratorical genius. He will be a political genius, a commercial genius, a military genius, and of course a religious genius. Intellectual, oratorical, political, commercial, military, and religious genius. And then we looked at his names and his titles. We talked about the fact that there are not many in Scripture, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, that get the, the, the amount of attention and coverage that this one gets. In fact, we found that there are at least 30 different names and titles used to refer to this one that we have come to call the Antichrist. And then we looked at his place in Satan's counterfeit trinity. We, we saw in eternity past that Satan's desire was to be like the Most High. And just as God is presented as a trinity, there is also a counterfeit or a satanic trinity. And of course, the dragon, Satan himself, is the counterfeit God or God the Father. And then the false prophet that we'll see at the end of chapter 13, he is the, the counterfeit spirit or the unholy spirit. And then we talked about the beast, the fact that he is the counterfeit son. He is the counterfeit Christ or the Antichrist. And then we saw his connection, the, the Antichrist. We saw his connection to the city and the Tower of Babel. And we saw that everything that the Antichrist is and everything that the Antichrist will do is wrapped up in that story way back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11 with the Tower and the city of Babel. It's all there where there was a first king of rebellion over Babylon and what this guy Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord or against the Lord, what he was doing is he was seeking to unite this world governmentally, commercially, politically, and religiously. And what God told you in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 15 is soon to be fulfilled. What God told you in Ecclesiastes 3.15 is that which has been is now and that which is to be has already been. 
And Nimrod is simply a foreshadowing of everything that the Antichrist is going to come to this planet and actually do. And we saw that connection. And then we saw another connection. We saw his predecessors in human history. And we found that throughout the Word of God, there are 18 major types of Antichrist in the Bible. 18. Six plus six plus six, which is the number of the beast. 18 types of Antichrist, of course, which Nimrod is one. And then now today, we're going to continue building this biblical composite of the Antichrist. But today, we're actually going to begin the exposition of Revelation chapter 13. All of those weeks of covering all those things is really just trying to just step back from the Bible, pull it all together, and let you just see everything that that the Bible has to say about it. And now we're going to learn a whole bunch more as we go specifically verse by verse through Revelation chapter 13. And in light of just getting back into it today, we're not going to get real far, but I'm just telling you, there's some incredible stuff that we're going to see this morning. I want you to see what John says in verse 1. John says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. And that beast, as we've already talked about a great deal, is none other than the one that we commonly refer to as the Antichrist. But now make sure that you understand what John is is giving us here in verse 1 is a description of the Antichrist from God's perspective. This is the way that God sees him. Now, understand, man does not see him like this. And please don't ever forget that the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14 that one of Satan's key devices of deception is that he transforms himself into an angel of what? An angel of light. That is, he appears to be something different than he is. You see, he's the prince of the rulers of the darkness of this world, but you're not going to see him like that. He transforms himself into an angel of light. And folks, the truth is, if you're ever really going to be able to identify Satan operating in history in the past, or if you'll be able to identify him now or any time in the future, if you're going to do that, if you're going to identify him, what's going to have to happen to you is you're going to have to have the eyes of your understanding enlightened to be able to see that, because I'm telling you, he is so devious, so deceptive, that you'll never do it with human eyes. You'll never be able to figure it out with a human mind. The only way that you'll ever have your eyes enlightened to see it, folks, is through the pages of this book. Now, do you believe that? I'm telling you, guys, if we did not have this book, you'd never make rhyme or reason out of where God or Satan is in this world. And what is so wild is what the world looks at right now and says, this is the work of God, is the work of Satan. And what the world says is the work of Satan is the work of God. Because, you see, what everybody in Christianity recognizes right now is the work of God is this unifying thing. I mean, come on. That's what the Antichrist is coming to the planet to do for crying in the rain. I mean, you know what? He ain't going to have too much to do when he gets here. Because Christians right now are just paving the way, dropping all of the doctrines that saved them so they can unify 
and pull the world together. It, it is just absolutely mind-boggling. What, what God tells us in Job chapter 41 is that the way that Satan transforms himself is by wearing different masks over his face and, and wearing different clothes to blend into whatever the situation in history calls for. And you see, if, if the situation in history calls for a, a, a military move, then what Job 41 says is that what Satan's going to do is he's going to put on a military face. And he's going to put on military clothes and, and do whatever it is that he wants to do. If, if it calls for a political maneuver, he puts on a political face and he puts on political clothes, a lot like these, and, and he does whatever he wants to do. If, if it calls for a religious move, then he, he puts on a pious face and he wears a little beanie in the back and a flowing robe that the whole world would recognize as holy or religious and that's how he dupes the world. And, and God asked in Job 41, he, he asked a question. And, and the question is this, who is it that can see behind the mask? Who is it that can see behind the costume that he wears and really see who's really at work behind all of these things? And, and the answer that rings out of Job chapter 41 is only the people who will allow the pages of this book to reveal him to them. Because God says in, in Job 41, he says, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Now, get it, Satan transforms himself, he conceals himself, and God says, but you know what? I won't conceal him. What I'll do for you is I'll reveal him to you. And again, the way that he does it is through the pages of this book, folks. Psalm 119, verse 130 says this, The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. And folks, Christianity, all of us in this room, we're simple without this book. But this book gives us light. This book gives us understanding. And you see, this book will shine through his mask and shine through his garments so that you can see who it is that's really at work in this world, who is really pulling off all this stuff. And the problem is, if you tell anybody what you see, they'll call you satanic, divisive, and, you know, hateful and all of that stuff. Because, you see, the world looks at everything that Satan's doing and goes, isn't this wonderful? Isn't the work of God just wonderful? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19 calls this book the more sure word of prophecy. And, and listen to what it says about itself in, in that very verse, Second Peter 1, 19. It says that this book, it's a light that shineth in a dark place. And you see, according to Job chapter 41, here's Satan behind the stage of history, and he's in the darkness, and he's back there, and he's kind of giggling as he's changing his clothes to walk out on stage and dupe the whole world. And he's back there in the darkness where nobody can see him, and he's back there, and he's, he, he's changing his clothes and his whole disguise, and he's going to come out, and God says, you know what? This book is like a huge spotlight that just beams down while he's back there to show you 
who's behind the mask to show you who's behind the clothes so you don't get duped when he comes out on the stage to carry out his role. And in the tribulation period, when the Antichrist comes on the scene to carry out his role, man's not going to see him the way that John sees him here. You see, man sees him the way that he's described back in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. What it says there is that man sees him as a knight in shining armor, gallantly riding on a white horse, having peaceful solutions to all the world's problems. And I mean the dude is smooth. He's suave. He's smart. He's diplomatic. He, he's, he's charming. He's inviting. And again, it's that whole thing. He woos the world. He's just got him. Man sees him like that. God says in Revelation chapter 13 that in reality, he is a seven-headed, ten-horned, diabolical, ravenous beast. And John says that as he stood upon the seashore, he saw this beast rise up out of the sea. Now, the sea in the Bible is consistently used to picture the Gentile nations. You remember in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Lord preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember in chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, uh, our Lord fulfills prophecy to the absolute letter in the Old Testament so that the nation of Israel would know very assuredly that God, the promised Messiah, had come and He was there in the person of Jesus Christ. And you remember that in the face of all of that indisputable evidence, after all they heard in the Sermon on the Mount, and as they watched as he fulfilled to the letter all of the things so that they would know that the Messiah had come, in Matthew chapter 12, what you find is the leaders of Israel commit the unpardonable sin. And what the unpardonable sin is, is attributing to Satan the power of, through which Jesus Christ operated when he was on this planet. It, what, what they said is, yeah, we, we hear you and we see you, but, you know, the power that you use to do what you do and to say what you say is the power of Beelzebub. It's the power of Satan. And, I mean, here is the, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. Here is their promised Messiah right in front of them, and they attribute the power through which he operates to the power of Satan and something major happens right there. The nation of Israel rejects officially their Messiah. And Matthew chapter 13 begins this way. Listen to it. The same day went Jesus out of the house, a word consistently used in the Bible to refer to Israel, the house of Israel. It says Jesus went out of the house and sat by the... Anybody know? He sat by the seaside. Again, a picture of the... Gentile nations. And if you plug that, that symbolism into Revelation 13, it appears that we, would, we could expect the Antichrist to come out of the Gentile nations. But you'll remember that ever since we began our, our study of the book of Revelation, because so many people want to come to this book and make everything in it a, a symbol and get them, themselves so boogered up in this thing that they can't make rhyme or reason out of anything that, that's there. What we've done as we've approached this book 
is we've taken a very simplistic approach. We've taken the approach that I believe God wants us to have here. And we've steered away from making anything symbolic except for the things that are clearly identified in the passage as symbolic. And we've noted that any time that in the book of Revelation where symbolism is used, God is always very careful within that same passage to define the symbolism that he's using. You see, uh, people want to come to the book of Revelation and make this thing such a, an extremely difficult book. But you see, if you'll come to this book and if you, if you ask the right question, this, this book is, is really, really simple. It'll totally simplify your life. You see, m most people, they'll, they'll be coming to the book of Revelation and, and they'll re read some passage and they'll come through all of it and they ask the wrong question. They ask, what does that mean? And, and listen, if you come to the book of Revelation and you ask that question, you're an accident waiting to happen. The question you need to ask is, what does it, what does it say? And you see, once you figure out what it says, now you may have to really work to just figure out what it said, but once you figure out what it says, just believe that and you'll have it. It's just real simple because it, it means what it says, okay? For, for example, when it says in chapter 9 that the center of the earth is going to open up. And when it opens up, there's going to come billowing out this incredible smoke. And out of that smoke is going to fly these demonic scorpion locusts who will sting the people of this planet during the tribulation period with a sting that is going to be excruciating for a period of five solid months what that means is that in the tribulation period, the center of the earth is going to open up and there's going to come out this incredible smoke. And out of the smoke are going to come demonic scorpion locusts who are going to come and going to bite and sting the people of this planet. And it's going to be so excruciating that it's going to last for a five solid months. You see what I'm talking about? And people go, I wonder what all of this symbolism is. No, there's no symbolism. That's what's going to happen. You see, and it's just, it, 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 sometimes some of that stuff is like, oh, that's just too freaky. But if you'll just believe it, that's exactly what's going to take place. It means what it says, and if you just believe it, it all fits together. And if you just come to verse 1, and you just simply believe what you read, John says that the Antichrist is going to rise up out of the sea. Okay, now listen, the, the, the sea... It is a word that is used exclusively in the Bible to refer to the Mediterranean Sea. Listen, the entire world of the Bible revolves around that sea, the Mediterranean Sea. It's the sea that's sitting right smack dab in the whole middle of the world of the Bible. It's sitting right in the middle of three continents. Okay, and, and, and you remember, remember a few weeks ago when we were doing this Russia thing, we had that map, okay, and, and remember we had Africa down here, and as it worked its way up here, that, that Israel was that land bridge that connected it to, to Europe and to Asia. Listen, the Mediterranean is, here's Africa down here, the Mediterranean is right at the top of that thing. And so what you've got then, you've got the Mediterranean, Africa is to the south, and then to the north and to the west, you've got Europe. And then to the north and to the east, you have Asia. 
And you see, the Mediterranean is just sitting right in the big fat middle of all of that, that, that stuff. And what you find is that the Mediterranean Sea is a perfect description of where the Antichrist will arise. And that's what we want to begin looking at as we begin this actual exposition of chapter 13. And let's look, first of all, at the unique parentage of this false prince. The, the understanding here that he's going to come out of that Mediterranean area, but I want you to look specifically at his unique parentage, the unique parentage of this false prince, or what we call the Antichrist. And I want you to see, first of all, letter A on your outline, his family lineage. His family lineage. How many of you have heard in about the last two weeks about Jerry Falwell's statement that got him in a bunch of trouble? How many of you heard about this deal? Uh, okay, well, I, you know, I, I was watching Channel 5 News. I'm ticked off at Channel 5 News because of this. I mean, they, they worked you all the whole night to get, you know, Jerry Falwell says he knows who the Antichrist is. We're going to have clips on that next. And, I mean, it wasn't next. It was the last thing, and then they, they, it, it wasn't. But, but Jerry Falwell made this this astronomical statement here. He said the Antichrist is going to be a male and he's going to be a Jew. Okay? And he's, uh, he's all in hot water over making that statement. Of course, nobody knows who Mark Trotter is, but I hope they don't get this, this tape today because they're going to... Uh, listen, if, if Falwell would have covered what we're getting ready to cover here, he'd have every group in the world mad with him. Okay? And you'll see what I mean here. But we're going to talk about his lineage. We're going to talk about his nationality for a few minutes here. And I'm telling you, this is, this is important and, and even intriguing to me because I believe from everything that the Bible would indicate about what time it actually is right now on God's prophetic clock. Now, check this out. I mean, this is just wild to me. I believe that this one that John sees here in, in verse 1 and identifies as the beast, I believe that right now... He is somewhere on this planet, very much alive and well. You say, well, do you think he knows who he is? And you know what? At this point, I don't think he does. And I, th I think you'll see that as we make our way through this chapter in the next several weeks. But I'm just telling you, it's, it's kind of wild, isn't it, to think that while we're sitting here in this room this morning, there's another place on this planet where the one that John saw here... He's in some room or some plane or some airport or he's somewhere right now alive on this planet in the Mediterranean area. Now, the Bible obviously doesn't give us his name, but it does give us a whole bunch about his family lineage. First of all, we do find out that he is a Gentile. He is a Gentile. That's number one under letter A. Now, and we hinted at that already with this whole Mediterranean thing, but let, let me show you this specifically. We know that he's a Gentile because according to Daniel chapter 9, and why don't you turn back there, according to Daniel chapter 9, what we find first of all is that he is a Roman. He is a Roman. <clears throat> and look with me at Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Daniel says, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Okay, now, now watch this. And the people 
of the prince that shall come. And now listen, the prince that shall come is a phrase that is used in Daniel's prophecy to refer to the Antichrist. And Daniel says that the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city, and the city, of course, is Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, and the sanctuary, of course, is the temple. Okay, now, now, now listen, when Daniel wrote this, the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple was a matter of prophecy. It was something that had not happened yet. But, but now listen, that prophecy has long since been a matter of historical record because it was fulfilled. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was fulfilled in, in what year? You know, I love y'all. <laughs> y- y'all are good, really. I'm telling you, that you, you could pull that thing out. Man, I'm, I'm telling you, I go to other churches and I ask, you know, I, I'll just leave a word off at the end of a verse and it's like, is that in the Bible? You know, and, and hey, for you guys to pull out 70 AD, I'm grinning, okay? And who were the people that destroyed, that came in and destroyed the temple in, in Jerusalem? It was the Romans. Anybody know the name of the general? I'm telling you, y'all are smooth. Y'all don't need me. You ought to fire me and save some money. <clears throat> but now check it out. Daniel tells us here that the prince that shall come, the Antichrist, will be of that people. He'll be an Italian. And even more specifically, a Roman. But somebody else says, well, you know, wait, wait a minute. I, I was reading back here in Daniel chapter 8. Why don't you do it? And I thought Daniel said over here that the Antichrist was a Greek. And that's the next one on your study sheet. Because Daniel chapter 8, verse 9, it refers to the Antichrist in this verse as the little horn. Verse 9 says, And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great, and drop down to verse 11, where it is said of him, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. And drop down to verse 24. I'm just trying to get you to, to be pulled into the arena that this little horn is, in fact, the Antichrist. Verse 24 says, And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. There's another power working through him. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Now, obviously, all of this is in reference to the Antichrist or the one referred to in the passage here as the little horn. But like with so many of the, the Old Testament uh, prophecies, and Frank has hit on this uh, some back when we were going through the book of Joshua. I, I've talked about it in the study of church history. There, there is often in the Old Testament prophecies a double fulfillment of the prophecies where God will he'll foreshadow the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy by bringing to pass a partial fulfillment during that period of time that the prophecy is being made or close to it so that everybody will know that this is, in fact, going to come to pass in, in the future. And if you check out the foreshadowing of Daniel's prophecy historically, you, you find here that this little horn was a man of Greek heritage 
by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who lived two centuries before the birth of Christ, who was an unbelievable picture of the Antichrist, and he came in and he caused the daily sacrifice to cease and all of this this stuff. And and because of that uncanny historical fulfillment, it's believed that the Antichrist also, in fulfillment of the little horn, will be a, a Greek. But now check this out. Not only will he be a Roman, not only will he be a Greek, but he'll also be a Babylonian. And and turn with me back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 14. Now, in in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 4 through 17, there's a description of a a, a king of Babylon. You you see that in verse 4. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4. This description of a king of Babylon, which verse 6 says, will smite the people in wrath and will rule the nations in anger. And as most of you are aware, the king of Babylon is identified here in this passage as none other than Lucifer. And obviously it's a reference to the power that was working through this earthly king of Babylon. And notice what, it's, what, what is said of this king in verse 16. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof? And and now listen, the interesting thing about this description here of this king of Babylon is that historically... There's never been a king of Babylon of which these things could be said. It's obviously referring to some future king of Babylon who will be empowered by and incarnated by Satan himself, which is exactly what Revelation 13 says will be the case with the Antichrist. So he's a Roman, he's a Greek, he's a Babylonian, But then there's another one. He'll also be, is this letter D on your outline? He's also a Syrian. And turn back to Isaiah chapter 10. And interestingly enough, 13 times the Bible refers to a king who will come to this planet and refers to him by the title of the Assyrian the first time is, is in verse 5 here of Isaiah chapter 10. But drop down to what it, what it says in verse 24. Isaiah 10, verse 24. Because it's apparent in verse 24 that it's a reference to the Antichrist. Verse 24 says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of of Egypt, and so we learn here that the Antichrist is also a Syrian. Now, I, I would imagine, you know, if I was in junior high or high school right now, uh, and, and I'm hearing all of this, I'd probably, maybe if I'm a little older, uh, I'm, I'm probably wondering right now, okay, how in the world can a guy be a Roman, a Greek, a Babylonian, and a Syrian all at the same time? I mean, come on, which is it? Pick one. I'm, what's the deal? Is God just making sure he covered his bases or what? Okay, well, let me ask you this. What, what, is, what is your lineage? You say, well, I, I, I'm an American. Okay. 
So by that, do you mean to tell me that you are a 100% full-blooded American Indian? Okay, right? Because, I mean, that's what an American is. Okay, any 100% full-blooded American Indians in here? No, but we, we call ourselves Americans. And by that, we mean, well, uh, I, I'm part Italian and part English on my mother's side. And I'm part German and part French on my father's side. Right? And, and what you are is you're a, really a, a composite nationality. And all of us are just like a, a big old Heinz 57 variety, you know? <laughs> and, and it's obvious through the places that we've looked at that what God is letting us know about the Antichrist is that the Antichrist is also of composite nationality. You say, well, okay, I, I understand how he can be all those at the same time. Got that deal down. I just didn't know he's going to be a Gentile. Because I'm siding over there with Jerry Falwell. I, I thought the dude was going to be a Jew. Okay? You're right. He is. That's number two. He's also a Jew. And, and to see this, turn back again to the book of Daniel, chapter 11. Daniel, chapter 11. And you find another prophecy concerning the Antichrist down in, in verse... 36, Daniel 11, 36. <clears throat> and the king, it says, the, the Antichrist in the passage, and the king shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. And watch this now in verse 37. Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers. And folks, that phrase... The God of his fathers, if you, just, if you just take it and you just run it through the Bible, what you're going to find is that is a phrase that is used exclusively every single time without fail. It's always used in reference to the Jews. And so God shows us here that the ancestry of the Antichrist or his lineage is through the Jews. He says he does not regard the God of his fathers. Now, I, I want to show you something else about his Jewishness here in another passage. But as long as we're here, let me just, let me just show you something else here that you may want to just take a note of and, and chew on. And that is that verse 37 here also seems to indicate that the Antichrist may very well be a homosexual. Verse 37 says... Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women. Now, now, certainly there are other possibilities of what that phrase could mean. But now check it out. As you compile everything that, that we've seen uh, that, uh, over the past however long, forming this biblical composite of the Antichrist, it would certainly be apparent to me that this one would possess... According to Romans chapter 1, what kind of a mind? A reprobate mind, which according to Romans 1.27 is characterized by, listen to it, men leaving the natural use 
of the woman, burning in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly. This one has no desire for women. And again, I'll give you room that it may be uh, uh, some other interpretation, but I'm just telling you, I doubt it. I believe the man will have a reprobate mind. And that's what God says a reprobate mind is. You ain't got a desire for women. You got a desire for men, which I've never understood. Just, thank you. I don't even know how you ladies desire men. You really don't, do you? You just desire companionship. Okay, but again, the main thing I want you to see here is the fact that he is a Jew. His forefathers are Jewish. And let me show you something else that's highly significant concerning his Jewishness, and then we'll call it quits for this morning. You turn back to Genesis 49, if you would. <clears throat> Genesis 49. Not only is the Antichrist a Jew, and God makes that, I think, very clear in Daniel chapter 11, but it is also apparent that he is from the tribe of Dan. That's number two under letter B. Now, if you've been here, you know, throughout our, our study of the book of Revelation, you'll remember that when we were cover, uh, hitting on Revelation chapter 7, what we found is that this tribe of, of Dan has always had a, a certain kind of knack for getting itself into some trouble. So much so that in Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, when God's listening to 12 tribes of Israel and the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes from which the 144,000 will come, what we saw is there was something significant about the tribe of Dan, right? The tribe of Dan was written out of the will, wasn't it? It's not there. Okay, you can go back in Genesis 49 find that it is there. At the end of this book, it ain't there. And it's rather interesting when you, when you start putting all the pieces together biblically concerning the tribe of Dan. What you find is in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 22, he's likened to a lion. And then in Genesis 49 verse 17, God likens him to a serpent. Ding, 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 ding. Okay, I mean, you don't even need anybody to comment on that. I mean, there's only one other person in the entire Bible who is likened to both a lion and a serpent, and that's none other than, than Satan, okay? But not only that, you remember that we, we've seen that it was the tribe of Dan in Judges chapter 17 that originated a, a system of religion that uses black-robed priests called fathers who use idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. It's all right there in Judges chapter 17. It's the religion of Jezebel in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's what was going on there. And coincidentally enough, now listen, when the Antichrist comes on the scene and does his thing in the tribulation period, listen, he will unite the world religiously using a system of religion that uses black-robed priests called fathers who use idols as aids in worship in their house of gods. And you see, that's no doubt why in Revelation chapter 7, Dan is written out of the thing because it becomes apparent, and you'll see it even further here, 
he is going to be, the Antichrist is going to be one from the tribe of Dan. Check this out here in, verse, uh, in, in Genesis 49. And this is the passage where the, the prophecy is pronounced upon the twelve sons of Israel, or, or Jacob. And, and notice what is said of Dan in verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Okay, now that seems real simple, but, but folks, listen. We're living right now in 1999 A.D., somewhere around 4,000 years after that prophecy was given. given and, and listen, to this date, that prophecy has never come to pass. You can never go anywhere in the entire history of the nation of Israel, anytime from Genesis 49 until the present moment, you can never go to a time where that has been fulfilled, but folks, it will be fulfilled. It'll be fulfilled in the very near future because a descendant from the lineage of Dan will rule the nation of Israel and will bring judgment upon the nation of Israel in the very, very near future. And without anybody packing up, or our time is shot this morning. We're gathering all this stuff about the Antichrist. And I don't know if this, this is just intriguing stuff to me, just to begin to see how the Bible just pulls this whole thing together, together to let folks like us, who be simplistic enough to believe the Bible, to be able to begin to form a, a composite of this one. And you know what? I, I think that these things are so important for us as a church to understand because I'm, like we talked about at the beginning, these are weird times, man. And Satan has got that frontal attack going. And for you to be able to talk to people biblically and be able to provide answers and give them direction biblically about some of these things, what it can do is provide an opportunity for you to begin to share with them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, you can take this morning and you can let that just kind of fill your brain and, you know, get your head about that fat spiritually. And that's all well and good. But you see, the reason we're taking the time to go through the book of Revelation and learn all of these things is because God's left us here on this planet to reach this generation with the gospel. And if you can give them answers biblically, not just, well, you know what I think, but be, be showing them some of these things, I, I believe it'll, it'll provide an opportunity for us to be able to talk to them about the true Christ. And if you're here this morning in this room and you've never received Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, the one who visited this planet almost 2,000 years ago for the sole purpose of dying on a cross to take the sin of mankind upon himself, if you've never come to him and him alone and asked him to be your savior, to forgive you of your sin, turning from your life, your way, your will, your kingship over your kingdom and saying, I want you I believe you are God. I believe you are the one that laid your life down so that I could have a relationship with you. And I, you bought me, and my life is not my own. I surrender myself to you. If you've never come to that place in your life, there's never going to be a better day for you than today. The Bible says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. We don't know. This may be the last day that Christians are on this planet. And if you're here this morning 
and you have not already put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the reason men will reject truth when they're faced with it like you've been faced with it this morning, the Bible says that the reason that happens is because men have pleasure in unrighteousness. It keeps them from coming to Jesus Christ because they want to continue being the one that calls the shots in their life. And listen, it, it, what, what God says in 2 Thessalonians 2 is that if you will willfully lie to yourself in the face of God's truth, that once the Christians have been removed and the Antichrist comes on the scene, God's going to give you just exactly what you're asking for today. He'll give you a lie. And the Bible says you will believe the lie of the Antichrist. You'll take his mark and it will seal your doom for all of eternity. And I, I, I'm, I'm saying that very quickly, succinctly, so we can move out of this building. I, I, I say that with a broken heart to you. I wish we had time now for me for 30 minutes to just plead with you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning. But now listen, the Bible says that it's the Spirit's job to reprove the world or to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And I know this morning we've not preached on salvation per se, but I believe that when the Word of God goes forth, the Spirit of God reproves of sin and righteousness and of judgment. And if you're here this morning and you don't have Christ as your personal Savior, before you get up, walk through those doors and enter back into what you think is reality. Before you do that, why don't you come to the reality of Jesus Christ as your Savior? Our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room as we're dismissed this morning. And before you walk out, would you take the time to just come and, and talk to one of our pastors? They'll have somebody. If you're a woman, they'll have a woman that will meet with you and take you to a, a, a private area. It's not going to be on public display or anything like that. To, to be able to talk to you about questions that you may have about something you heard today or about what it really means to have a relationship with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we invite you this morning, if God is speaking to you, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. And Lord, I do want to ask you this morning for folks that are here that don't know you. I, I pray that more than just coming to a service today where they have been intellectually stimulated, I pray that you by your Spirit would stimulate them in the very depth of their soul. I pray, Father, you would draw people to yourself today. I pray that, that people in this very room today will have their eternal destiny changed because they submit to you, to your calling upon their, their life, to your Lordship. So Lord, now would you please work in our midst, work in the hearts of, of people here, and Lord, would you help us as a church every week that we learn these truths from your incredible book, May these things cause us to turn to a world that doesn't know Christ and is blinded by the wicked one. And help us, Lord, to, to seek to reach these people while we still have the time. And we ask this for your glory's sake. Amen.